Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast powered by Twisted Tea. We got a great show for you today. Weldon Rodenberg back to do a fall camp check-in. We spoke, spoke about the Kari Coleman suspension, the uh, State of the Union as we get the uh, coordinators once a year, what Pete Golding had to say, a little bit of char- what Charlie Weiss had to say, Lane Kiffin letting Derek Nix coach the scrimmage, adding some running back depth, and a plethora of other topics as there's been no sor- shortage of storylines this fall camp. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, wanted to remind you. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Their Turnberry location sleeps eighth comfortably, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus, right off their right off Old Taylor Road. There, it is gated. It offers amenities such as tennis courts, a sauna. Again, sleeps eight comfortably. They have availabilities for Mercer. Vandy and ULM football weekends. Please go check them out. It can be hard to find a place to stay in Oxford, particularly on big weekends. Or maybe you're just passing through on a random night or a random weekend and you're looking for a place to stay, want to have some more space, have a larger crew with you, don't want to screw with the hotel. This is the perfect place for you. It's nice. It's a straight shot to campus. You can walk to campus. It is one of the best locations in Oxford. Go online today at rentthesipoxford.com and check availabilities. Use the promo code RIPPYWRITES for 100 bucks off any two-night stay. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss out on this. Go to rentthesipoxford.com. If you've got plans to come to Oxford in the future, this is the place to be. It is a steal of a deal in a town that can often be hard to find places to stay. Check them out. RentTheSipOxford.com. It is Bracken Ray, friend of the pod. He wouldn't steer you the wrong way. Please take advantage of this deal. RentTheSipOxford.com. Use that promo code RippyWrites and get 100 bucks off any two-night stay. Podcast is brought to you by Seaspire. It's time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. Ain't that the truth? I couldn't do this podcast without Seaspire's awesome internet. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides itself in having the best customer service. In the home internet market, their customer service is award-winning, local service, industry low, call wait time. Seaspire provides one gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and Southern Alabama regions. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of the brand new two gigabit and eight gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call Seaspire or go online cspire.com slash home today and use the promo code RIPPY, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, for one month of free service. So if you're thinking about changing internet, that's one month of free service just for telling them you listen to this podcast and you get the best home internet on the market. Seaspire, customer inspired. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting staffer, Weldon Rodenberg. It is uh, two weeks into fall camp. It's been the start of the EPL season. This is really just full swing. How you been, my man? You feeling better? You were a little under the weather yesterday, if I remember correctly. I uh, am feeling better as of right now. It's been going on and off. I was uh, at a very good friend, you know, Jack Mitchell's uh, bachelor trip this weekend, and I came back with the understanding that I'm clearly not as good as I once was um, because we, we, I was only there for two nights, and I've been nursing a pretty vicious 48-hour hangover um, to a point where, like, we were supposed to go last night. I was like, I don't think I can talk for an hour and a half or two hours about anything right now. So I, I'm better for now, uh, but it's also 104 degrees here in Houston, and uh, it's I'm trying as far as I can to stay inside. 
during all this shit. I waved the white flag on that long, long ago. If I have a big trip like that, bachelor trip weekend, I understand that Monday is going to be terrible and we're just going to roll the dice on Tuesday. It could still suck. It's just like these three-day hangovers. I, uh, yeah, I've waved the white flag on that. Mississippi, actually, right now, I went outside today. The uh, It was in the 60s in the morning and the high was 83. And it's going to be the same tomorrow. But then on Friday and Saturday, it's back to 108. So we get this like two-day tease. There was no rain that I'm aware of or anything. They were just, I guess God was just like, hey, you're going to have six more weeks of this. But uh, here's two days of decent weather. It feels amazing right now, but it's going to suck in like a day and a half. Well, the weather is crazy. I mean, I might as well be living in Phoenix right now with the way it is. It is 98 in the morning. It is 100 throughout all day until about like eight o'clock and the sun goes down and then it's back to 98. I mean, it, it is tough here right now. Uh, That's the not, difference between Texas yeah. and Mississippi, too, is like I played golf really late one evening last Saturday. And like when it gets like 6 p.m., it becomes a little more enjoyable. But when I lived in Texas, like MC and I couldn't sit on her back porch at seven o'clock at night in August because it's still like 105 and just bearing down on you. No, I mean, there's no difference, I mean, between playing golf here at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning and 11 o'clock. It's just miserable no matter what. Now, I still go out there every time I can, but they will not deter me or stop me, but it is, uh, it's pretty rough. I uh, I braved the heat this weekend. I went and followed uh, our guy Hayden Buckley around for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the FedEx St. Jude. It was his first event back from a rib injury that cost him six weeks and and maybe that's the secret to not being hung over is you drink alternate waters and $13 beers at a PGA tour event and you walk like six miles and you don't feel as bad after. I, I literally, I could have drank nine beers and not felt anything because as literally as I was drinking it more was sweating out. So maybe that's the key. Just walk seven miles if you want to drink at the same time. Well, I mean, I have not. So let's see. I play golf. If I have a free weekend, I'm I'm playing golf. So at least once or three times a month since, I mean, since whenever, I would say, let's call it April. And I don't think I'm drinking a beer on the golf course since then. It's not worth it. it. It is so hot. And like by the time you get through like three or four, if you're like out there, like really, you know, kind of getting after it. I mean, by the time you get home, you're like, I mean, you can't even get up because the heat exhaustion, you know, it, it's just way too much. I'm not in great shape anymore. So, you know, playing 18 holes of golf, like my, my back is sore. My shoulders are sore. If I'm also like slightly hungover, it's just not worth it. I truly don't think I'm drinking a beer on a golf course in like four or five months. It's been too hot. You can't even really catch a buzz. I mean, you mentioned getting through three or four beers. You don't even really feel a whole lot. You're just drenched in sweat and you feel worse than you did if you drank water. We'll get to the football in a second, but I had one funny story from the weekend of that. So after his Saturday round, I think, so I walked around. Um, his wife was there. Uh, I went with some friends who were high school friends, my fiance MC's friends with his wife as well. So like his family was there. So we spent most of the, like the two, three days just kind of walking around with them. We were like the only people on the course, just following him around. So it was a, a pretty tight knit crew, but on Saturday he went and signed his scorecard and he came back like at the putting area at Southwind in between there and like talked to us or whatever, and just said, hello and all that. And we were catching up for a second and <laughs> He's my guy's getting a little bit more big time. He was walking off the 18th green and some guy, some drunk dude just screamed M I Z and was like, can I have your autograph? So he like signed an adult's hat in addition to some other autographs. I think that guy actually may have found a way to catch a buzz, but he's in there talking to us and he's got some kids coming up asking for autographs. And all of a sudden this one kid comes up with a putter in two pieces and walks up to Hayden and goes, can I have your putter? Sam Byrne gave me his, he's my idol. 
And Hayden was like, I mean, I didn't putt very well, but if I break it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll think about it. And then like he, the kid ran off and he looked at me and he goes, that kid was actually carrying around a putter. And I was like, no, I think Sam Burns snapped his putter in half and gave it to this kid. And so this little kid is just running around probably with the Callaway jailbird, because that seems to be all the rates these days in two yeah. pieces, asking other tour players for their clubs. Bold move these days with kids. Well, I mean, that's, that's Sam's fault for, for creating the precedent for, for these kids out there. I think everybody's going to give away their clubs. I know sometimes and golf is different, but at tennis tournaments, like, those guys go out there with like eight rackets, you know, oh, yeah. takes a string pops during a match. And like, if they lose, like I watched, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was like OJ Aliasim, uh, like literally give away like five rackets to kids <laughs> sitting in the stands. So, I mean, it's, there's precedent for it. Uh, how, how is Southwind? How's the setup there? I enjoyed it. It's a, uh... I don't mean to complain, but like from a, if you've never been there before, like, so I showed up late after work Friday. So he was on like hole six or seven. And if I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was doing. So I went the complete wrong way and literally walked like the golf course and a half before I actually found six or seven, but it's really kind of enjoyable. There's enough shade that even in the heat, if you're walking and you're like committed to following a group, it's not that bad. It's not that hilly. I think it's a fair setup. There's a ton of tough par fours and only two par fives on the golf course. So it's like a very interesting test. I, I enjoyed it. Obviously I've never played it, but like from, from the layout and the setup, I really enjoyed it because like they have some gettable holes at the end of the front nine. And then there's like some really tricky ones in the middle of the back. And then there's like three or four birdie holes. And then they kind of beat you over the head on 17 and 18. So I really enjoyed the setup. It's a really cool finish. I think I asked because it does seem like there's been a lot of complaints about where it is on the tour schedule, having it in Memphis in August. Like that is not ideal. Getting the playoffs like it really like doesn't make a lot of sense. But then it's like, you know, FedEx is like the sponsor of the playoffs. So they're getting that tournament in one way or the other. Uh, I just don't know if they're going to keep it there, but it's, it seems like a really cool course. I've never played, I've played Memphis country club, but I've always wanted to get out there. Is, is it public? So it's a TPC. So I assume you can get on it. Pretty okay. Much okay. I didn't know if it there's, was TPC or not. Okay. There's yeah, clearly you, a, a membership though, because there's all kinds of nice houses, nice pro shop. It's literally adjacent to the FedEx campus. Like we would park in the FedEx campus parking lot and take a very brief shuttle to the entrance. So it's literally like in the backyard of the FedEx campus. Interesting. Okay. I did not know that. Like I said, now I've spent time in Memphis, but I've never been out there. I don't know. I went once years ago. Um, I said last story, but one more that cracked me up Friday, Saturday on 17 Buckley hooks it in the trees. He's like trying to hit it over to get it on the green um, from the right side. He kind of pull hooks it even worse. All of a sudden it takes it in a complete ricochet to the left and bounces to what it looked like on the green it ended up being like 25 feet on the fringe. And I was like, damn, my man bounced it off the grandstands. Well, come to find out he actually just bounced it off a human body. Some guy just took one for the team and it ricocheted immediately left. Oh my God. The fringe. <laughs> and he was like down and like putting ice on it. And he like took a shuttle back like to the clubhouse, but I was standing next to Hayden's brother. He's like, should I slip that guy a five spot on behalf of the Buckley family? I was like, no, no, he got a free sign glove and balls. He's just milking it at this point. But, uh, you know, no, play the course, man, just bounce it off the civilians. Nothing wrong with that. So all these there's, so he, he's from Mississippi, right? Yeah. Two club. And then Davis Riley, who's won me a ton of money on first round leaders. Is he a Mississippi kid too? Hattiesburg PCS. Hattiesburg. And then there's one more Got Chad Ramey won the uh, Mexico tournament last year. And he was the first round leader at 
uh, yeah, the uh, sawgrass players, players, right? Yeah, he like shot eight under. Okay, so I'm I, these guys. They're good first round guys. I don't know if they can ever win one, but <laughs> they they're always on my list. When I'm looking at first round leader odds because for whatever reason they always come out like firing. It's absolutely nuts. Like for the size of the state and the population, Mississippi has very good amateur and now third budding into professional golf. Chad Ramey grew up on a nine hole course with no driving range that he still practices at seventy percent of the time alongside Ali Ewing or Allie McDonald, no, Allie McDonald Ewing, who was the second round or third round leader at the women LPGA uh, British Open, has been on the LPGA Tour, I believe has won at least once on the LPGA Tour. Both of them grew up in Fulton, Mississippi on the same drive, uh, on the same nine-hole golf course, and uh, both are at the top tours of their level, which is kind of well, wild to me. Mississippi is a really good golf state for, for Mississippi. I mean, I don't, it's hard to explain like what I'm trying to say there. I mean, for a state that it is the way it is, I mean, it's got great golf in the South, North, Central, uh, whereas Louisiana is maybe 49th out of 50 in the entire country in like quality of golf courses. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot weird of that that, do, that's the case. Particularly well, New a lot of it has there, to do either. with the elevation. So like in South Louisiana, I mean, New Orleans Country Club currently, like, they're about to go through a full 18-hole renovation of the entire club, but they're not changing a single part of it. All they're doing is they're uprooting every single fairway and redoing, like, the drainage and the flow underneath because they have such issues with, like, rain and just all of the above being below sea level. Um, and then, like, I mean, Baton Rouge is, it has two good courses. Then Sam Burns lives up. Uh, near Ruston and plays at a course that I cannot think of off the top of my Quail head. Hollow. Not Quail Hollow. No. No, 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 not Quail Hollow. Um, wait, there's a, there's, uh, I can't think of it either. It's, and it's, okay, this is bad podcasting. Something Hollow. It's a nice, nice golf course in Louisiana by Ruston. I can't think of it either. Yeah. And I will think of it eventually on this, but like, that's it. Like, I mean, I know they they play the tournament at TPC down in New Orleans. But like, that is nothing. Squire Creek. There we go. Squire Creek. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, and they have that one tour event, which they should have a tour event in Louisiana. But, like, TPC Louisiana over there outside of New Orleans, it's like it's nothing to write home about. It's, it's bizarre. But, like, I mean, you've got some incredible spots in Mississippi that are, like, really underrated all, all around. So uh, it's not overly surprising they've got some guys that have really come out of there. Got more coming too. So that has been Golf Corner to kick off this uh, football fall <laughs> camp podcast. We have a, uh, we got we a lot. To, yeah, we got a lot to get to today. I just had to recap the weekend. I walked a total of eighteen miles, so that that's worthy of at least five minutes on the podcast. You pat yourself on the back a little bit. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> oh, I've been patting myself on the back for like two days. I was like, do I want to go work out yesterday? And I was like, no, no, no. I, I walked a basically a marathon this weekend. So borderline athlete here. Ole Miss is uh. A couple weeks into fall camp now, almost two full weeks as we recorded this on a Tuesday evening. You know, we've done some, uh, now that this is our third or fourth fall camp, I can't remember which one it is, but there's been some where it's like after a week and a half, I'd be texting you and being like, hey, let's do one, but I don't know what the hell we're talking about. I feel like this has been no shortage of storylines. Some good, some bad. I guess we'll start with the, uh, we'll call it the hard news segment out of the way. Uh, Rebelgrove.com reports, I believe on Saturday evening was when Chase finally dropped that story. Uh, I say finally, they broke the story, but uh, that had been in the works for a couple of days. Corey Coleman suspended um, after an arrest on five counts of indecent exposure stemming from an incident that happened on campus. 
I can't remember what's in the story, but I mean, whatever. It was outside one of the dorms. I know that for 100% fact. Um, doesn't sound like a misunderstanding. I saw some message board fodder about uh, he was peeing outside. I'm not going to get into too many details. That was not the case by any stretch of the imagination. No, it was not. <laughs> um, and it comes, you know, from a football sense. Look, I'm not going to get into the whole, like, oh, this is real bad. No shit. It's bad. Breaking news. But, like, in terms of his absence, however long that may be, I don't know if he misses – multiple games i don't know if he misses zero games i don't know how they're going to handle that because of the opaque nature of the whole thing but it comes at a gigantic position of need for Ole miss right linebacker was severely lacking on depth and now you lose a guy for better or for worse there's going to be a starter and at the very minimum a major contributor for you and now you look at the linebacker room and it's like well how many bodies do they have that they can count on we're already talking about the heavy burden on true freshman centurion perkins well now that just got even heavier you know what i mean like it's not like they hit the portal overly hard at that linebacker position. This feels like a big loss if he misses games or multiple games. This is something to monitor in terms of when and if he comes back. Oh, it's definitely a big loss in depth, which I think is like a point of concern for, you know, almost every single level of the defense right now. Uh, and then one of the things we've talked about about this linebacker group is they all have like incredibly different skill sets. And Coleman was an example of that. He was a guy who at TCU uh, as a freshman was like incredibly impactful off the edge for them and an almost uh, poor man's version of Harold Perkins where like he wasn't ready to understand uh, like all of the instincts needed to play a true middle linebacker, which was the exact same situation with Perkins. But they were like, this kid's so athletic, we have to get him on the field and early on last year, I think you even saw like still not totally there as an off-ball linebacker, but he definitely provided athleticism they needed at that spot. Um, and he was going to be counted on to do that again this year. So now you're down to, you know, Sistrunk and Perkins and Montgomery and Jean-Baptiste uh, and then the Carter kid out of Virginia. And I know they moved Tennyson to linebacker, which – I think makes a ton of sense. I don't think he was needed at safety with all the new bodies they've got in. So he was like a bigger run stopping dude. It was like safety, but a tweener type. He really was like playing the like CJ Gardner Johnson role. The saints had like where CJ was playing like a nickel corner, but like 95% of the time he was like rushing off the edge. If he yeah. didn't have a responsibility on the back end and like Tennyson was doing the same thing. Like, yeah. Of course, he's guarding man-to-man if it's necessary, but he was really kind of coming off the edge as an extra defender most of the time. And I think it's actually a really smart and advantageous, you know, way to handle the situation by Golding is be like, you know what, we're, we're just going to take away that other responsibility and use your strengths. Um, so there's bodies there, but, you know, in terms of like guaranteed known experience, I understand that some of these portal guys have been successful other places, but this isn't, as we always say, it's a different level. Um, and there's kind of a lot of unknown, but there's, there's still a lot of bodies there. Um, so it's not, you know, it's far from the end of the world, but that's definitely lose, potentially losing a pretty important contributor. And you mentioned the bodies aspect. It, it's, it's slimmer than you think. I mean, you, you nailed the too deep piece of it. If you take away, let's just say for the sake of the conversation, Cardi Coleman will not be available for game one. Granted, they'll handle, handle Mercer, but just from a sheer depth chart standpoint, unless I'm missing someone, and again, I know they moved Ladarius Tennyson over to linebacker, but you're talking Montgomery, Sistrunk, probably toward like the middle ass, like the middle linebacker position. Now it's Jean Baptiste, Perkins, and 
name who else. They got a kid named Tyler Banks as a sophomore, Reginald Hughes. Banks Nobody that's proven at all. I mean, you got four dudes, and then just like, what, what does this actually look like after this? And maybe – Maybe Coleman comes back and they're able to to withstand, you know, not having a lot of depth before the schedule gets too rugged. I don't really know. But like you mentioned the bodies piece of it. It does become pretty limited. And that's also not knowing what the hell Tennyson will actually be and how he'll actually be used. No, I mean, we we talked about it last time when this this team over the past three years has had basically three completely different linebacker rotations. Like there has been absolutely no continuity, which is. What you get when you're a primarily portal team, especially on the defensive side of the ball. So that was a guy that was going to be in the second year. You know, yes, it's a different system, but at least second year playing SEC football, uh, that's now not going to be a part of this team, you know, at least in some capacity, especially right now in the fall. So, you know, he probably won't be ramped up by the time game one, game two comes anyway because he's just been out with an absence that we've noted before. So, I mean, it's it's concerning, especially at that position. And then kind of going down the list um, of, I would say, the more harder news stories, it was reported on Friday that Spencer Sanders was absent from practice due to academic issues. We started texting about this pretty much as soon as the news dropped. I think it was uh, Chuck Roundsville at On3, um, I think. Um, but I believe Spencer Sanders was back for the scrimmage on Saturday. Do I have that correct? Yeah, so I I would say he was definitely back on Saturday. I don't know if academic issues is the right term for it. I don't okay. really remember the report. It was an academic thing. So academic I, thing, we'll call it. Yeah, I like that. All of it sounds incredibly suspect. I don't know what the, what could have possibly have been. For a guy that started, you know, that's been playing four years of college football, I don't know what the academic thing was, uh, but it was definitely notable um, and something that people brought up and were like, okay, is this kind of where we're going with this? I, I don't know. But I think he was back on Saturday. Yeah, and so I, that's, you know, we talked about how I, I very much, I, I don't understand the whole Sensor Sanders presence. Um, we talked about, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about can he transfer again. It does seem like from the way he talks, the way everything we hear – I mean, whether he wins the job or not, he's probably in it for the long haul. He got a little bit of work in the second half of the scrimmage on Saturday. This just adds another confusing layer to it. And for a year where you thought the quarterback picture was, I'd call it equally as clear as last year, because while uh, Luke Altmeyer and Jackson Dart were competing for the starting job, I think we both probably had a pretty good lean. I know hindsight's twenty twenty on who would end up winning it. A year where you had two more bodies to the mix, even though it was kind of pitched as a two-man race, there hasn't been a lot of question and scuttlebutt and discussion about the quarterback battle, which usually dominates storylines in fall camp because everyone just assumes that Jackson Dart is going to win the job unless something surprising happens. What's the sense that you get there? The whole thing is just strange to me. Well, it's been strange from the start. Um, and I think we've attempted to do our best job of concocting some possibilities of what could be happening you know, even, you know, talking about Howard and what's his deal. I think, you know, based on everything I've, you know, heard about this and, you know, kind of my eyes and ears in practice or listening to Neil and Chase whenever they talk, uh, is that this is Jackson Dart is going to be the starting quarterback and there's really no need. It would take, barring like something either tragic or shocking, he, he's going to be the starter. And I think now the conversation kind of presses on to like if, there's a situation where he can't be in the game. You know, what What are they doing with Howard and Sanders? Because it doesn't really sound like Howard's getting a whole lot of two reps. He's not not getting two reps, but uh, it seems like it's Dart and then 
is it going to be like a political situation where you told Howard he's going to be the two and then like Sanders is just there? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, but I think the most important takeaway is that, you know, they really have believed in Dart's improvement, which is great to hear, uh, and that he's pretty much asserted himself as the guy. And then there was some very unconfirmed buzz at some point in the last couple of months that now run together, whether it's the podcast or remembering what happened during spring. But you mentioned like the political like guarantee thing that you do not heard a little bit of the whole like God, uh, Howard will be number two, even though he won't play this year. Like there was a little bit of that. I have no idea whether that's true or not. I'm not saying that as a concrete fact, but I'd heard like a little bit of maybe it's just message board rumor buzz. Like, has anyone been promised the QB two job? I wouldn't figure you'd promise that to Sanders because he's coming in to win the number one job. Again, the whole thing is just very, very odd. And it is now because what I guess out of any of it is becoming clear is that Walker Howard was brought in because they needed another, they had to have another scholarship quarterback in the room and they had to have some semblance of a future at the position. Whereas it does seem like Sanders was brought in to push Jackson Dart and give a little bit of motivation or organized chaos to bring the best out of him versus this being an open competition. Yeah, I, I completely see all sides of this. Um, it's kind of reminds me of like what kind of happens in the NFL sometimes. Um, you can only carry so many of these quarterbacks in the roster. And sometimes you have these two guys fighting for the number one quarterback. And then if they end up not being the starter, they become three, not a part of the team. You know, they're QB three or they're waived or whatever. And obviously you cannot wave or, you know, cut play. I mean, you can, but that's not going to be the case here. Um, but that's like kind of the read I'm getting from one, what you've heard about Howard in that situation, not only from Ole Miss people, but like from the LSU people as well, from that side of people that his dad were talking to, you know, no one was saying concretely that he was told that he was going to be the, the backup quarterback, but, you know, you can kind of infer from certain details from certain people who would know that, yeah, that's kind of the scenario that was brought uh, to the table whenever he decided to transfer to Ole Miss. Because so, he was QB3 at LSU. So why move states to go from three to three? A hundred percent. You know, that it would not make any sense. And it's a big question, like, for both sides right now. You know, LSU's forgotten about it, but it's like they kind of see things happening over there, like especially when Austin Simmons committed. Uh, LSU were like, wait, so is he like going to even be quarterback two next year if Dart stays? I mean, because who knows with the other kids. So – it's a. It's always not made a ton of sense, but I don't necessarily think it's always in like a negative viewpoint. I do think you're going to see a situation in my prediction based off of, I guess, just, you know, nothing, a little bit more than a guess, would be that Jackson Dart will be the starter, Walker Howard will be the backup quarterback, and Spencer Sanders is happy to get some NIL money and be on a college roster. I mean, that, that, that seems like what if you just piece everything together that we know about the situation, that makes the most sense. Right, because like the most interesting piece of it is what happens like you, I think you described it a second ago, is Dart is unable to play or if he struggles. Because last year, even though they drug the quarterback battle out into the season and Kiffin went like two, three games for actually naming a starter – Jackson Dart had a had some tough moments. The offense sputtered. Now, granted, it wasn't so it wasn't like glitteringly obvious it was Jackson Dart's fault. And they're like, what do you do? But it never felt like even if Jackson Dart had been bad and been a primary reason the offense had struggled for a game or multiple games, 
that he was ever going to get yanked because I don't think anyone felt like Luke Altmaier was a potential upgrade. I think you probably, they felt pretty comfortable. They knew what they had in Altmaier, but they weren't going to throw him in to see if they could get a higher level of quarterback play where maybe that's the difference this year. Dart, whatever, how long his leash is, if he performs well, or God forbid there's an injury, what happens next? Because it's such a wild card scenario between Walker Howard or Spencer Sanders. It does feel like there is a possibility that if Dart struggles or he gets injured, you could still find very high quality quarterback play between the two. That's the difference between this year and last year to me. It, it's beginning to feel more like an insurance policy than yeah. a competition, basically, is what I think you're kind of trying to say. And then, of course, you remember last year, like after the four games or whatever, I think Luke Altmaier had kind of come to some sort of agreement term, like, I ain't playing this year. I'm keeping my eligibility and I will be transferring. I think that was that's just, a good point. That was a yeah, that was that was just part of the deal at that point. So no, there was really no pulling dart. It was kind of you know roll with the punches, positive or negative. Uh, I think just the more fascinating conversation now is like who is the insurance policy? Is it was it Howard or is it Sanders? Because I mean, I can see a situation where the staff was like, yeah, like look, we're obviously going to go for Howard. He's incredibly talented, young. Sanders uh, could be a guy that, like, I mean, if he comes in here and lights the world on fire, like, we're sure as hell not going to be disappointed if he's our starter. But it, that does not really seem the case, whether it's this academic thing, him being injured in the spring. Like, it hasn't really materialized into a real competition. So we're getting Jackson Dart as the starter. I think he has earned it from everything we've heard. So it's not like they're giving it to him. He's taking it. He seems like the, the team is behind him, and he's done what he needs to do. And I think – Another part of this is this is also Charlie's second year in a system. So I think there's growth not only in the room, but in the coaches as well. And so as it becomes more and more clear, this is Jackson Dart's thing, uh, team. I want to steal a note that uh, Neil McCready had in his uh, 10 thoughts column that I thought was very interesting that I'd kind of kicked around the idea when just trying to figure out how any of this makes sense. Is there any credence to the idea that Spencer Sanders accepting being a backup or whatever his case may be, that there is a Sanders package that you lessen the wear and tear on Jackson Dart in utilizing, I don't want to say obvious QB run situations, but maybe during a red zone. My God, if I say Barry Brunetti, P. Ole Miss fans are probably going to have a fit uh, running off the road. But something like that, specialized packages where he can utilize his feet and you maybe save a blow or two for Jackson Dart in terms of him taking hits because he took a ton of them last year. Uh, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, I mean, it's definitely something that I would imagine they've at least looked at. Um, it's not like he has any leverage in the situation either. It's like, you know, if they decide not to play him, like, what's he going to do? He's not saving any eligibility. <laughs> yes, that's no. Sure. So I don't think they'll be forced to do anything like that to keep him happy. Because, like, who cares? Uh, which I know is not what the coaches are thinking because they're not like that. But that's what we can think. It's like, who really cares? But, yeah. I mean, he's a he's a really big physical kid, and so is Dart. But um, Sanders probably has a little bit more wiggle to him. I wouldn't be surprised if they used him in certain packages, um, not even goal line necessarily, um, but even to take away some carries and some wear and tear from Dart. But Judkins, too, because he's going to get so many carries. To have another factor in the running game is definitely important. We'll get back to Weldon Roderberg in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Better help. Unfortunately, life does not come with a user manual. So if it's not working for you, it can be, feel normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, becoming a new parent, whatever you may have on your mind, it can be a lot sometimes. 
BetterHelp is the world's largest online therapy service. It has helped match 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, and it's all 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just go online, fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to another one. And again, it's 100% online. Therapy is just like anything else. We put gas in our cars. We change the oil. We do regular maintenance on our cars. Our brains are no different. Therapy is a great way to make sure you, yourself, and your mind are functioning at peak capacity. Go online to betterhelp.com slash mpw. That is betterhelp.com slash mpw for 10% off today. Podcast is also brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any hard beverage you've had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs of flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering for your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting with friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate the game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experiences. Twisted Tea, the drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Their college football special is now live on the site. They're posting analysis for the upcoming NFL and NCAA football season to make you a sharper and smarter better. And right now, if you buy the NFL uh, picks package, you get 50% off by using the promo code 23. That's in addition to the promo code RIPPY that gets you 20% off any picks package. You're never going to make money in the wrong run if you're in the wagering game going based off your own lean. Skybox are the professionals. It is a foolproof algorithm. It is based off the math. They profit every single year. You need to get on the Skybox sports bet train and not lose money this year for a change and instead profit. They send it to you in a color-coded spreadsheet once you sign up for a picks package, categorized by unit, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before sky signing up for Skybox Sports Picks. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Repeat Rights subscriber, that's repeatrights.substack.com. Get a newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Go in, show Greg proof of subscription, then go find all your own favorites. LB's is the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious seafood, incredible cuts of meat, awesome sausages. It is the best butcher shop in the world. Go throw something delicious on the grill. It's a crown jewel of Oxford. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. Yeah, and Dart had a little bit of the uh, Matt Corral syndrome of, hey, man, could you slide? No, like, yeah. Let's, you know, he bowled that guy over at Georgia Tech. The sideline went nuts. That felt like a like a somewhat seminal moment of, like, he's their guy. Like, you know, he uh, Kiffin talked about You're the other classic, day. Like, overly vocal, cliche. but, like, an action leader. And they're like, this is our dude. But, like, obviously not great from the uh, offensive coordinator's chair or Lane Kiffin's chair. That could be – and you talk about the insurance policy, that could alleviate some wear and tear on that. So, I don't know. It's a very uh, clear but also unclear picture at the quarterback position. It seems to be clear who's going to start the season as the starter – but my God, if, if you throw a wrench in it with an injury or struggling offensively, then who the hell knows? I'm just going to throw my hand up and say, I have no clue. Um, we did get our coordinator state of the union 
um, over the weekend. I believe they spoke late Friday afternoon. We're going to start with Pete Golding because with respect to Charlie Weiss, he mastered the art of saying not a whole hell of a lot while also sounding engaged and genuine and not standoffish at the same time. I mean, that is the ultimate compliment. Um, so there's just not as much qu- there's not as many question marks on the offensive side of the football. It's not as interesting. He was not as big. You know, he's not the new hire. He's not as big as name of a hire. So I'm going to start with the Golding aspect of it. And it's the first time we've heard him talk since he was hired at Ole Miss. And um, he lived up to every expectation. That was 17 minutes, which is longer than most any other media opportunity that's not like your local media day that I can remember any Ole Miss coach having. I, I certainly didn't sit through many 17-minute uh, midweek media availability press conferences in the time I was a reporter. And I just thought almost every question he was asked, he gave a, a very engaging and thoughtful answer. And honestly, most of it seemed pretty genuine. There was very little coach speak, even in this kind of coach jargon that he did give. There was honesty in it. I'm just curious what you thought of the way he speaks and the way he thinks about football, because we heard a lot of this about he's a whiteboard savant. If you get him talking football, you'll be captivated by it. That's how he got the Alabama job. I guess my simple conclusion to that is I can see why I I was drawn for 17 minutes. He's incredibly impressive. Um, I mean, there's a reason why he went from UTSA to Alabama and stayed there as long as he did. Um, he, he was awesome on Friday. You know, I, I watched enough of it to, you know, have some knowledge, but I can't remember, you know, quote by quote, what he was talking about. Uh, and as the host of the podcast, that could be your job. Uh, I don't worry. I got us covered. I had a newsletter that'll probably be out by the time the podcast is done. That was mostly on Golding. So we're just trying uh, to hit the, hit the high points. No. Yeah. But it's, it's the most important question, you know, for this team is like, what is this defense going to look like? And, you know, Chase, posted a a question on Twitter. It was like, what, uh, you know, if you had that one stat from any, you know, player for Ole Miss, like, what would it be? And I responded to him. I was like, turnover differential. (laughs) I like that. I think that was a really smart way to put it, too. My uh, answer was going to be uh, Caden Costa urine samples, but I think (laughs) it takes the cake. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't heard enough of the backup kicker yet, so we might need to have another insurance policy brought in from somewhere else. (laughs) Jesus. Um, but you know, he just he's qualified like Golding, he's just qualified, he's engaging, he's interesting. He actually answered questions with, you know, like you mentioned, like more than just coach jargon and coach speak. And I think it's it's something you get with coordinators who have aspirations to be head coaches. They take real advantage of the opportunity to speak in public because they don't get it very often, you know. I mean, I don't even remember anything about his time at Alabama or hearing him talk except for like maybe a TV thing once or twice or whenever that they uh, thought that it was him that was hugging that cheerleader after the SC championship game. It was actually his GA. That's about as much a golden – and then, you know, his, his little legal issue. But um, like it, he was just a really, really impressive um, answering every single question with like real feeling. And he just clearly is a guy – He's not a rah-rah guy, which I think you'd expect coming from Alabama. And, you know, that is just really not the case with him at all. He's very not laid back, but very confident in the way that he goes about his process, which, I mean, it is so easy to see insecurity in coaches, especially coordinators and position coaches, but they don't get the opportunity to speak. So when you hear them, you either, you can tell right away, if that guy's full of it or not. And Golding, like, truly does not is not that kind of guy. He's a guy that's going to be a head coach in this league eventually. You know, he's 
covered every single base. He has aced every single test, and he's got a pretty big one with this Ole Miss defense this year. Uh, but I do think they're in really good hands. He was really, really good. You're exactly right. He exudes security, and he's like – you mentioned he's not a rah-rah guy, but he's also from like what I've read in practice. is like he's intense in terms of like he's very – he spends a lot of time coaching up dudes individually and doesn't really miss a beat and has a lot of energy without the whole, I don't know, the guy, the, the, the antithesis of the guy that you just described is the dude that runs around and screams for three hours at practice. And then when he does get his media availability, he just talks about how they're going to hit people and that they don't have wussies on this team, that type of thing. But yeah. like the way he talks is very confident, and very cerebral. And I'll just go through a couple of quotes that I picked out in the newsletter that um, stuck out to me. You know, he talked about, uh, you know, what's an, he got asked, like, what's an ideal Pete Golding defense or how he builds it? And he said, quote, our motto is fast, smart and physical in that order. The reason for that is I don't care how physical you are. If you aren't smart enough to be in the right place, it doesn't matter. I don't care how smart you are, because if you aren't, um, or excuse me, I don't care how smart you are, because if you aren't fast enough to be in the right place fast enough to not make the play, then it doesn't matter. So number one, you got to get speed at all positions. It's like, why do you have to get speed at all positions? He said, this is a game of space now. We're working the horizontal end of the field. You have to get guys who can run and process quickly. The difference between the college and the NFL is there aren't a lot of unbalanced formations in the NFL. Not a lot of teams are running tempo. You combine all those things I just listed, that can all happen in one play in college. I thought that was kind of interesting. It absolutely is. I mean, when it goes back to, you know, my time in recruiting, like, you know, your speed, size, you know, kind of ratio you go about. It's like the unknown is always the, the, the instincts. You know, you can see certain things in certain positions, especially on defense, to infer that he understands the position he's playing, but you don't know. And we would always, you know, go back and we're deciding between kids and kind of evaluating our board and being like, well, you know, if we're going to miss, we're going to miss either really big or really fast. And so, but he's saying exactly what every coach in this league is saying is, you have to have all three, but you better be fast because this is just a totally different game than we're used to. Um, and even like these defenses, like you look at that Tennessee Alabama game and be like, oh, that was a total shootout with two shit defenses. Like, no, like that's just the, the name of the game. You know, those defenses are still incredibly efficient. They're just getting scored on, you know, and it's a kind of a process over result situation, which he's having to start here at Ole Miss. Uh, and he's, you know, not talking down and not like, you know, being, you know, demeaning or anything to reporters. He's giving to you what it is, which sometimes you'll get coaches that kind of like, you know, give some stuff and telling you how little, you know, he was not that at all on Friday. And I butchered the second part of that quote. It, his, the, he was talking about, I don't care how smart you are because you can be smart enough to be in the right place. But if you aren't fast enough to make the play and tackle the guy, it doesn't matter. So he's like, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And building under it, which I thought was very fascinating. And then him talking about the tempo piece of it um, was interesting to me. He also got asked why he left Alabama. And I thought this one was very interesting because what did we hear when he left Alabama is who knows what his job security was there. It seemed like he was a very similar position to where Partridge was to where he like wasn't fired clearly like in the traditional coaching cycle, but like, like Lane Kiffin, Nick Saban, maybe had a wandering eye, uh, maybe at a bald headed guy named Jeremy Pruitt among others uh, to maybe come in and, and be an upgrade. But from Golding and with that in mind, I don't have my head in the sand. I don't think this is literally the reason why he left, but from Golding's perspective, I guess leaving Alabama aside, maybe answering why he chose Ole Miss, probably the best opportunity. But what do we hear? His family thing, his wife's from Mississippi. It was going to be a much better move for his family. 
And he didn't really shy away from that. So it's probably similar to you guys in media in that having coach D2, one double A, whatever. Uh, sorry, the goal was always to get to the SEC. But I get think you get so locked into your career on the next step. For me, it was Division II, one double A, then mid-major, then the SEC, and then becoming a coordinator. When you're married and have three kids, you can lose sight of what your values and what you're really about. Having won a national championship, I wanted to go somewhere my family could be more involved. My wife graduated from Ole Miss. My mother was born and raised in Mississippi. I played in Mississippi. So when you can go somewhere that you've had success, that has had success, that is very close to being elite and help feel like you can make an impact on that while also being somewhere your wife wants to be and continuing doing what you love, I think that is special. I just thought that was interesting. He could have scoffed it off and given some canned answer, but that kind of tracked with everything we had heard as to why he came to Ole Miss, not necessarily leaving Alabama, but why he went to Ole Miss versus elsewhere. No, absolutely. I mean, with assistant coaches, especially, and I've seen, you know, coaches come and coaches go, everyone has different priorities on how they make those decisions. You know, people don't love moving every single year, despite what you might think, you know, even if you're getting a, you know, a significant raise, it doesn't always matter. And I think it's, it's really truthful what he's saying about his family and like, like, you know what, I'd like to get back there. I know I can go there. That opportunity can be given to me. You know, that's a huge plus for my career. You know, I'm making, you know, I don't know what he's making compared to what I was at Alabama. I'm sure it's at least in the ballpark. Um, but I think it's a great answer. And it's a very truthful answer because I promise you there's been coaches who have passed up opportunities for better spots that I know of that were like, that's just not a place for my family. And I, I don't, I don't think that's going to work out no matter what the price is. Um, so I, I respect that answer. You know, I think the truth of whether he was told to leave Alabama or, or he actually, you know, was told he needed to stay and then he chose Ole Miss over Alabama. The truth is somewhere in the middle there that I don't think any of us know um, besides him and maybe a few people that care enough about it. But the moral of the story is he's here. He's happy to be here. And he's a really good football coach. That's all positives. He got a little bit of a raise. He will make $1.9 million at Ole Miss in his first year. And according to an article published last August in the Tuscaloosa News, he made $1.73. I think this includes incentives at Alabama. So it was a little bit of a pay bump. So our man Pete is just living large. Family's happier. He's got an extra two hundred k in the bank. He's just uh, he's just loving being in Oxford. Oh, yeah, I mean, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that also helps as well. A raise will help, but uh, props, <laughs> props to him for not mentioning that, I guess. Yeah, I would not have guessed that, but uh, good for Ole Miss. <laughs> he also got asked a question about the similarities between Kiffin and uh, Nick Saban, which he started by laughing. I'll go to his opening comments first. He had an opening comment about, like, good to be here, blah, blah, blah. It's good to learn from Coach Kiffin. There's a lot of different ways to win football games. I feel like I learned that here, <laughs> which made me laugh because that was unprompted. That was not asked a question. When he was actually specifically asked about it, he laughed. But then he said, honestly, a lot, especially in a meeting format. They both demand discipline in the program, but in different ways. Um, a lot of mannerisms are very similar. I think what Coach Kiffin does a good job of is you can be at a place for a very long time, then go somewhere and try to run it the exact same way, but each job is different. Not the same resources, not the same place, not the same job. I think Kiffin takes a lot of what made Alabama what it was while also putting his own imprint on the program. I That answer could have gone a million different ways, but again, oh, yeah. I'll give him an A- minus on that one. Uh, I think A- minus is fair. And I mean, a lot of that's true. I think one of 
Kiffin's best attributes is his ability to like have kind of a fluid thought process on how to run his program, how to run his offense, how to hire coaches. You know, he's not kind of stuck in his ways that we've seen. I mean, and coaches have been incredibly successful doing what they do. I mean, Dabo Sweeney has done what he's done at Clemson since he's gotten that job. And this will actually be his first year of like really kind of shaking up things over there and some of the ways they've done it. So, I mean, there's not a right or wrong way. So I think the way he answered that question, like really makes a ton of sense. They look, they do some of the same things. They do some different things. There's a lot of ways to do this. Nothing's right. Nothing's wrong. It's just different. Um, and he's experienced quite a few different uh, regimes in his lifetime. So he definitely knows a lot more about what's on the outside compared to what some of us would know. You said the word adaptation. Is Jimbo Fisher not the poster child of this? If he doesn't let Bobby Petrino do his job, this is now almost a decade of Jimbo Fisher being stuck in the Jameis Winston era in 2013. That's exactly what you're talking about. Dabo is a great example, too. He's having to adapt, but like Jimbo is like the guy who's just hanging on to the old way of doing things for dear life and is literally going to be forced to, or he's just going to get a ton of money and not coach. Yeah, it's going to be one or the other. You know, it's like there's not even – you know, a rhyme or reason around it at this point. It's just the way that he is. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to change. And we can make the assumption that because he hired Bobby, that that's not going to be the case it remains to be seen. I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest question marks this entire football year of what's going to happen there. Cause they have so much talent. Um, and now they have a real potential offensive coordinator, but if he's going to call plays or not, like I said, very much remains to be seen. Last interesting note I had on the Golding press conference, at least the one I wrote about, was something you've talked about. And I won't go through the whole quote, but he was asked about like the uniqueness of Mississippi kids. And he immediately went into comparison of like Mississippi kids. This is recruiting, by the way, uh, prospects. He immediately started comparing them to Texas kids. He was like, look, you got, I've coached in Texas. These kids have ridiculous coaching. They have, you know, double the staff. He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing here, but much more staff better facilities. I, I've The way you described it to me the first time is what I'd seen with my own two eyes covering high school football in Mississippi, then freelancing games for the Dallas Morning News, where like indoor practice facilities are the norm. Um, I know I've told that story a billion times about I covered a game at South Lake Carroll. I had to apply for a credential. Then I was like, where's the press box? And the lady was like, take the elevator north of the gift shop. And I was like, excuse me? Like yeah. that type of stuff. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. There were people tailgating in vans in the parking lot and then in Mississippi, you know, you if you have a nice indoor weight room with AC and the adequate weights and the adequate space, you're doing pretty damn good as a football program. And he talked about that a lot. And that's a lot of what you've outlined on this podcast in various forms in the last two years. And I thought him saying that was very fascinating. And the way he ended it was interesting was a lot of times those kids reach their ceiling earlier, talking about the Texas kids with the good coaching and the good facilities and all that where Mississippi kids are very good athletes that improve very quickly with higher, oftentimes can be higher ceilings. But then he also said there are kids that are appreciative of it. He said, I've often found Mississippi kids to be appreciative of the opportunity to value having a nice locker room and value being a part of a team and valuing having awesome gear and feeling like they have to earn it and to keep it versus some other guys with better high school coaching, better facilities, not only reach their ceiling, but feel like they've already arrived. Was your experience similar to that? I thought that was a very fascinating quote. It it is. It's a great quote. It's something that, to be honest, like I really hadn't thought about it from the psychology of the players once they get, you know, to campus, because to be honest, like I'm around those kids, but I'm not coaching. I was never obviously coaching the kids. So that really makes a ton of sense. I think especially at Alabama, 
you know, especially when they're recruiting kids from Mississippi, from different parts of Alabama or Louisiana. I mean, it, it's just completely different. I mean, Texas, they just opened a $35 million football stadium in Melissa, Texas. Not for the independent school district, for Melissa High School. Like, that's it. It's just, it's theirs. I mean, that's just, it's just so overblown. And then not only in, like, Texas, but you've got Georgia where they might not have like the crazy facilities, but the money involved in Georgia football, especially with like the coaching and stuff like that is a completely different animal from even Alabama or Louisiana or Mississippi. It's just completely different socioeconomical football culture, not just, you know, socioeconomical culture in general between the two States. Um, And this is coaches know this. I think it's a massive part of the evaluation process when you're going through and like seeing you know, the positives about Texas is that you're seeing these guys play at the highest high school football level. So like you get a lot of that there, but then Mississippi, you know, you have to even do more work because you're knowing that these guys, a lot of the times, you know, the stack teams are playing some just garbage teams against bad coaching. It's like, what does this, what are the positives of this kid? You know, what can he do versus what I'm not able to see by the kid playing in Mississippi? It's not easy. Sometimes I think there's, the more national recruiting has gotten, especially the coverage, especially the growth of like seven on seven, there's definitely more exposure than there has been in the past, but it's still not to the same level. And I think it's also why it's so important, especially at Ole Miss to take advantage of classes like this one currently with guys that you have elite players close to you. I mean, it's just, it doesn't happen very often because of the population and the cycle of things going, you know, outlined it perfectly. Well said. And I, again, it's just a fascinating piece of it. And that was kind of all I had on the golding piece of it. Other than the fact that I guess I'll hit one more small note. He got asked about like the portal heavy approach on the back end of the secondary. And he was talking about like, they need a lot of different options back there, but he was like, as multiple as we're going to try to be, we're going to try to disguise different things that we do while being simple. He was talking about how he's, he feels like he has a couple guys that would be playing slot and nickel corner, but could also play corner. And that he feels like an underrated strength of his team is like, I could have a slot corner that's playing a nickel guy, but really that guy is a pretty good corner. And one of the biggest ways you get beat in this league is speed has become a premium is in the middle of the field and in the slot. And he said, I felt like, you know, this was a pretty good way to combat this. I'm curious your thoughts on that, of him thinking that he has, you know, three, four decent corners, even though if they're all new guys, particularly in the nickel position to cover guys in the slot, because he feels like that's a way in this modern age of football, you get beat that maybe necessarily people haven't picked up on as much. Yeah. I mean, if you go like your old school evaluations for players, whether it's high school or college, it's like your best DBs are playing corner. And if they can't play corner, you move them inside or to safety, you know, where they're not in such a liable position on the field that has changed to some extent with the athletes that have been put in the slots and how fast teams go, you you have to have speed and coverage ability everywhere. Uh, I think, you know, Golding saw it firsthand. They had a guy named uh, Jalen Waddle, <laughs> who pretty good, pretty good player who just absolutely torched teams because he was so damn fast in the middle of the field that people, they didn't have corners to cover him. I mean, they had, they couldn't man him. They couldn't, you know, zone him. He was just so fast. He got everywhere. And, you know, you're seeing it more and more and more with these teams that have these inside receivers that are not your typical, you know, outside X, you know, six, four guys in in this league. You know, they're fast. They're quick. You have to have elite cover guys everywhere now. Um, So I think that having 
as many options as you can that you're comfortable putting in every single position is incredibly important. And he obviously, and I preface this every single time we talk about football, I don't know everything about defense. I don't even know enough, you know, to be dangerous anymore as long as, long as I've been out of it. So I'm not going to critique his opinion and like say I disagree, but I think what he's saying, at least my knowledge of, of what I've been through, you know, it did makes a complete, it makes complete sense. I didn't have much on the Charlie Weiss piece of it. I guess I'll wrap up the golding piece of it and say, we'll see him next year unless they make a New Year's Six Bowl or the college football playoff. I don't think my man will be talking again. What a crying shame. I get the policy. doesn't really bother me, but I enjoyed listening to him talk. I didn't have a ton on the Weiss side of it. I just had a couple quick notes. The Caden Priestcorn presence is very interesting to me. I've talked to him a couple of times since he came on the podcast. Seems like a nice kid, very mature, just got married. He's got a kid. Um, that'll, that, that'll make you grow up or at least hopefully seems like a very, yes. very nice dude. Um, who's really kind of coming into his own as a football player. He had a very, very unusual path to the sec. He was a kid that wanted to play uh division one mm-hmm. FBS football goes to a military Academy to play quarterback, uh, has a pretty good year, breaks his ankle. And then all of a sudden he's like, I don't have any offers. Basically gets a walk on opportunity as a favor at Memphis. They move him to tight end. COVID pandemic hits, then all of a sudden he's like, I'm actually pretty good at this tight end thing. I'm 6'6", 250. Point being, it seems like he's just coming into his own as a football player, but he's a very mature presence. And I thought something Charlie Weiss said when asked about Caden Priestcorn, piggybacking off of something that Lane said that I'll get to in a second was interesting to me. He was asked about uh, Caden Priestcorn. He said, quote, he's a great leader. He leads by example. I think it's very, extremely important for us to have guys who are intelligent football players who can get lined up quickly, who know exactly what to do and do not make mental mental mistakes. I cannot emphasize that enough in terms of how important it is, especially in our system. I had a Lane Kiffin quote from two days prior when he was asked about Caden Priestcorn that I deleted in my drafts because I'm a bozo, but he was asked about Caden Priestcorn as well. He was actually asked about both tight ends. He was asked about Trick in the first part of the question and Priestcorn in the second. He started with Priestcorn, and he talked about what a smart football player is, what a mature kid he is, what a leader he is, that he knows how to get lined up, that he doesn't make mistakes, and that he is everything you would want in terms of a leader and a guy that knows what to do who has picked up this offense in a very short amount of time. And then he gave an answer about how basically Trigg has done some good things for them and they hope he will be, you know, an impact for them this fall. Is there any coded messaging in either one of those quotes, do you think? Because uh, I got a little bit. You know, it's funny, you know, Priestcorn has clearly come on as like a really important part of this offense. Have I uh, have I ever told you the Mike McIntyre San Jose State story about no, tight ends? have at it. Let's do it. So McIntyre was like in the room with us one day and he was talking about his time at San Jose State. And this the Priestcorn path brought me up to this. And he was like, you know, that place was in shambles. And he was trying, trying to build. two players or something and he said yeah you know I signed 22 players I signed 12 tight ends and we were like what are you talking about he's like yeah I I signed 12 tight ends and uh of the 12 guys uh, actually only like one or two of them ended up playing tight end you know we had one guy ended up being like our backup quarterback we had two guys play defensive line two guys play offensive line a guy played linebacker one didn't grow and played receiver and then like the other two played, played tight end and that's just like the priest corn's the same way. He started at quarterback and then he's like moved to this position. It's like, oh wow, like I can really do it here. And those guys are just invaluable for their knowledge of the game. 
because he's played different positions. He knows what he needs to do. And now that he's played that position long enough, just understanding different schemes and what he has to do is invaluable. And clearly they have another guy in Trigg, completely different body type, completely different athlete, damn near playing a different position, but they need both of them. And they're doing everything they can, I'm sure internally and clearly externally, trying to send him a message of like, this offense runs the best when we have both of you. Um, but I think they're going to be pretty happy with pre-score no matter what. And this isn't an original take at this point, but it does seem more and more obvious as we get further into this thing that he's probably going to play a pretty significant role in this offense. I mean, he, by his own admission, you know, you mentioned tight. We talked about this in recruiting before where like, you don't really recruit a ton of tight ends out of high school, right? Tight ends are where you go if you don't quite fit first, but you're pretty damn athletic. Like how many tight ends were you like, I want this kid to play tight end at Ole Miss. He was a tight end in high school while you were there. There is usually year by year, nationally like 15 to 20 guys who are like that kid will be playing tight end the next level like and that's honestly maybe like a high number where you're like that's a tight end he's going to come here and play tight end uh so you're saying 15 of those guys played tight end on offense in high school too Yes. Okay. Okay. I got you. I mean, that's not a lot. I mean, no, they, no, 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 no. That is very few. I mean, think about 380 kids designed on D1 scholarships in 2021 in Texas. That was a stat uh, that I uh, looked up the other night when look, talking about what we were talking about earlier. 15 yeah. nationally tight ends, not that many. Well, I mean, 15 that you're like guaranteed that's a guy we're looking at and recruiting. He's going to play tight end. That is the end of the story. Like, it's really incredibly crazy how little of just like this guy is a high school football tight end who is going to play college football tight end. It's a very unique position, different kinds of body types, all different kinds of offenses use tight ends different ways. They're looking for completely different skill sets. So it can be a few more depending on if you're okay with not having the size, but pre-scorn is like your, your ideal do it all tight end that just does not come around very often. By his own admission on this podcast, he's six five. He was a high school basketball star, which Trig was as well. Um, I have a story for another day about Trig telling me in an NIL interview what he was going to do in college basketball wise. We'll save that one. But point being, they're both super athletic guys. But Priestcorn, by his own admission, he said, you know, I asked him what his biggest strength was. He thought he was like, I can go up and get the football. And I was like, that makes sense. You're 6'5, 250. You mentioned the do it all thing, but it's very fascinating to me. You're right. They play the game a different way and they're almost playing different positions. But like their peak trait in some ways is that they actually do the same thing very well. They just kind of arrive at that at different points, if that makes sense. They're both freakishly athletic who can go get footballs. Yeah, absolutely. Which is important in this often. I mean, you've seen it with, uh, you know, with Yoboa for the four games. He also called a touchdown pass in a preseason game. I don't know if you saw that uh, as he watched the fan. But like Hunter or Harrison Bryant, you know, thinking about the OJ Howard. And some of these guys that he's had, like they're all in the same mold of like they have an elite ability to catch the football. You know, if they can bring something else to the table, that is a massive added plus. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they they get there in different ways. But, you know, even like a Kyron Heath, like he's a different body type, too. He's a little bit stockier, a little bit shorter, a little bit more athletic than maybe Priestcorn is, though I really have not seen Priestcorn obviously practice for one second. Um but he he struggles to block. Same thing with Trigg. So mashing it all together in a guy like Priestcorn is just huge. Last thing I'll ask on this, Neil had a note um, 
oh, about a week ago, I believe it was the weekend practices before that, that Trigg was not present at the end of the Saturday practice and that he had heard, and look, this is a week old now, so I don't think I'm giving away any deep, dark secrets about Rebel Grove's paywall reporting, that Trigg was frustrated about where he stood in terms of running with the twos. Neil didn't report that directly. He didn't say that directly. I'm kind of coloring in the lines there. You've dealt with a lot of kids, a lot of different personality types, a lot of different types of recruits. One thing that's interesting to me, and I haven't heard much about the whole Trig thing since that happened. I probably could have read into it a little bit more or tried to find it a little bit harder, but hey, we're balling on a budget in terms of time, is what do you do with a kid like that that's entering his second year? And from just a sheer, the most simplest point of view is my first thought when I read that was, well, what does the kid expect? He kind of stayed in the doghouse last year. He couldn't really stay on the field. He got yelled at for not lining up correctly in the spring. How do you arrive in your second year of preseason camp and are either surprised, upset, maybe a combination of both or dismayed that you're not just naturally running with the ones? That to me, tone deaf sounds a little harsh. I get their kids. I don't mean that in like a super harsh way, but that seems to be you're disassociated from reality in some aspects. I guess my question for you is, how long do you stick with an uber-talented kid like that that doesn't seem to quite get it, and now he's entering his second year? Like, is there a point where I got, this guy's just never changing? Did you deal with anything similar in your time there as far as guys you recruited? Not that think, you're naming names, by the way. Just No, no, of course not. Uh, of course not. No, I mean, it's it's a difficult situation. I think, you know, especially adding in with our favorite buzzwords, the portal and NIL, it's like how how do you treat these situations now? You know, currently Trigg is, you know, is kind of stuck at Ole Miss. Like I, he probably won't be able to transfer. So you have some leverage in the situation of being able to coach him a different way than you would, let's say, if he was an uber talented Eric Gilbert type freshman. Um, there seems to be, you know, no legal issues. So like that really would change the dynamic pretty quickly if you were dealing with not only, you know, struggling to grasp football situations and, you know, psychology, but if you added that other element, it's, yeah, it's your fate is cemented if the feds get involved pretty quickly. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that would change things pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> it's, I think the way they handled it by demoting him and like kind of making a statement uh, is probably the right way to go about this. You know, it, it's, it's some sort of motivation to understand like, look, like, you you will be given nothing. You know, th this is not how this is going to work, especially because we now have a guy that we trust and are fully confident in. Like, we can work with you in different ways without having to, like I feel like last year, like just throw you in it whether we wanted to or not. Uh, he's going to have to grow up a lot. And it's pretty clear that, that he's continuing with some of these issues, whether it's a confidence issue, whether it's a lack of work ethic, I have no idea what, you know, the background of the problems have been. Uh, yeah, you deal with it all the time in football. You know, this is high level football. Kids have been told they are the best things in slice bread since they were freshmen. Trig, especially being a highly rated recruit in two sports, has probably just been, you know, catered to at every, you know, beckoning call. And now he's not. And now he's not playing. He hasn't been as successful as he thought he was going to be. I mean, USC clearly just kind of was like, you know, we're fine if you want to go to. Like, that's not nothing. Uh, I don't know what's going to come of this situation. I'm kind of tired of talking about, like, how talented we know he is. That's, like, doesn't mean anything anymore if you would ever play. 
That's exactly so, where I'm going. Yeah. That you you made an incredible point. He has 24 college catches entering his third year. You know, you talk about what it, like how talented everyone knows he is coming out of high school. At a certain point, you have to do it at the next level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it, there's nothing there. He he has been a net zero at, at so far as a rebel. I hope that doesn't stay the case. And I think they're going to do everything within their power to an extent to get him to buy and understand. But I mean, we're moving on over 12 months of this now of like not getting it. So I'm not overly hopeful. Same way. And then I guess I mean podcast for another day, but uh, I was told Hudson Wolf, or I say I was told, I think I read that Hudson Wolf was in a uh, full go. Uh, I had the black jersey taken off. So I don't know what a mystery that tight end position is. That could be a fascinating topic as we wade. Uh, later in the season, a couple of quick final Ole Miss notes before we get to the fastest growing segment on American soil. Um, Ole Miss added, I believe the last time since we've done a podcast, Jam Griffin at running back. Kid spent a year at Georgia Tech, a couple of years at Oregon State. He comes in a couple of days into camp. He had media availability the other day. He was kind of talking about just getting adjusted. What, what made him want to go to Ole Miss? My, uh, I think the most important point first is I'm going to be so glad when this COVID asterisk on the roster thing goes away because to me in my brain, it's like when you're on the phone on an iPhone and someone else is calling you and they give you the three options, but your brain freezes and it shouldn't be that complicated, but it kind of is in the moment where it's like, hold an answer, answer and hang up. It's like, this is actually a straightforward thing, but you panic and you're like, shit, this is confusing. My brain cannot get that correctly. So when I was looking up Jam Griffin, he's a senior Asterisk, I'm like, oh, okay, he's done. He's that COVID senior. And it's like, actually, for the 50th time to remind yourself, the asterisk actually means he has one more year of eligibility. Yeah, to package that into a real question, my monologue aside, this felt like it made a ton of sense. We talked about like the portal approach and the heavy reliance, but this felt like an adding on the edges where you really needed it uh, ad for Ole Miss. Granted, late in the game. Running back seems a little bit more palatable and compatible to figure it out pretty quickly, but they only had three scholarship running backs. It was Judkins, true freshman, and Lissy's Bentley, who had a minor injury in the scrimmage on Saturday and I believe started practice this week in a black no-contact jersey. I don't know what kind of impact this kid will make, but it's an older kid who's played a lot of college football and is just a needed, competent body. This made a ton of sense to me and could be an underrated ad for them. What did you think? No, I mean, it, it makes sense in multiple different areas. I mean, first of all, for just this season, you just can't start a season with three scholarship running backs. I mean, that's unheard of. I mean, just from a depth perspective, especially not only that, just an unknown perspective. Bentley's had injury history for two years now. Briscano is, you know, according to all reports, looked, looked really good, but he is a true freshman. You had to have another body in there. And then him having another year of eligibility is even even better because you're going to lose Bentley next year. I believe he's done, right? I mean, yes. who the hell knows? But, yeah, he's done. So I'll go look be, up for that asterisk and see. Yeah, so, I mean, you'd be right in the same exact situation going into next year because you currently don't have a running back committed uh, in your class. So, now that you have just an extra body going into next year with an experienced player, I mean, it, it hits both marks perfectly. He's been successful. He's shown that he is fully capable of playing at the Power 5 level, especially at running back. I think that transition from the Pac-12 to the SEC will be fine. Seems like he's got kind of a little bit different of a play style, more of an out-the-backfield kind of screen, kind of a smaller uh, 
he reminds me of like the old Jaquiz Rogers who was at Oregon yeah. State, like kind of the same mold. I'm sure that was their recruiting pitch to this kid whenever he, <laughs> he ended up there. Um, I actually remember this kid in recruiting. Well, because he's um, a Southern kid initially, correct? I believe he played at Rome High School in Georgia. Um, I think he went to Georgia Tech. Ori- I really remember this kid, put it that way. Um, he did go to Tech originally, for sure. Yeah. Okay, that's right. I thought so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge add up and a massive position of depth need. Yeah, I, I think it makes a ton of sense for them. And then the last little Miss thing I had really storyline-wise was over the weekend, old, uh, Lane Kiffin let Derek Nix be the head coach for the scrimmage. Um, he let them, you know, he let it, and pretty much they, it sounds like they treated it exactly like a game where there was like a night before meal, night before speech, game planning, things like that, trying to simulate a game as quickly as possible. He let Derek Nix be the head coach. Derek Nix is a guy that's been at Ole Miss for generations at this point. I believe he's all the way back to the nut staff. He may have been all the way back to Ogeron, which um, I'll just put it in total perspective. I'm now 28. I believe in Ed Ogeron was fired. I was 12. Um, so that, that seems like a long time. He's been Good there for guy. Like you worked years. alongside him. You're on staff with him. I thought this is a very interesting thing for a number of different reasons that Kiffin came in, uh, for his Sunday or Monday presser. My days are getting confused. I think it was Sunday or Saturday, whatever it was after the scrimmage and said, look, I wasn't the head coach today. So I'm going to bring Derek Nix in. And he went on a little bit of a monologue of my dad used to tell me, that, you know, be thankful for where you are because this profession is not good to everybody. And he was talking about, you know, black head coaches, minority head coaches. And whether you agree with it, whether you disagree, whether you think it's virtue signaling, I I just found it to be a cool thing because Derek Nix seems like a very nice man. And Kiffin seems to think a lot of Derek Nix, and it seemed very genuine. I know we kind of call Lane out for seemingly being full of shit on a lot of different things, mostly innocuous stuff and, you know, answers that aren't important. But I found this to be very genuine. And as someone who's worked with Derek Nix, what did you make of this? I just thought it was a very cool story. Um, I think it was awesome. It's great. It's something that Nix deserves uh, to get his, you know, fair share and his opportunities. And Kiffin clearly uh, took this idea from something that uh, Vrabel did at the Titans where he let an assistant yeah. coach the first preseason game. So, like – I don't know. Original idea is probably not the case, but that doesn't take away from what I think is a really impressive and important decision. Derek Nix is one of the best people I've ever met in my 43 years or whatever, you know, being at Ole Miss and working in football. There is just no one like him. He is as good as it gets, not only as a coach, but as a person, he is the man. Um, he probably has not gotten as many opportunities as he should because he's black in the South. This is just like a really, probably the most impressive thing Kiffin has done since he's been here in terms of like a understanding of where he's at, what position he is in and allowing someone like Derek Nix to to have this opportunity. And it's not everything, you know, it's just, it's a weekend to be able to see what it feels like to be a head coach and have that experience. It's not like, the biggest deal in the world, but I think the statement is, and yes, I've read what people have said about this being, you know, virtue signaling, which by the way, if you use that word, you just complete, completely drop off my radar. Um, you know, it's a publicity stunt or whatever. Even if that is 5% of the truth, like that's not the important message you should be taking from this. And if you, for some reason are frustrated by this, like you should just look yourself in the mirror because that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Kevin's right. 
there's not a single African-American head coach in the SEC or the Big 12. I mean, that's insane. And you know, I mean, even when they get opportunities, you've seen it before with African-American coaches, they they have a shorter leash. They're, they're you know, it, it's just, it's a crazy deal in the sport where your rosters, like Kiffin said, are made up of 80 to 85% African-Americans, yet the amount of coaches, not only in college football, the NFL, it is so, so low. And a lot of people have done a lot of really you know good things to try to help with that issue and help with diversity, whether it's in training, whether it's giving out, like I think they have a lot of coaching applications in the NFL to be a part of a system that gives you opportunities to, to understand and learn from tutelage from other African-American coaches that have been in that position. It's awesome. There's only positives to take away from this. And I've seen like some slight negatives coming, whether it's on Twitter or on the board that just absolutely make no fucking sense to me. I'm going to steal from uh, my former employer, Super Talk uh, Sports Talk Mississippi. I was listening today as we record this to Richard Borky and Haydad and the crew on the way home. And they talked about like kind of the virtue signaling backlash of it. And I say backlash. I mean, it's not really like public backlash. You know, you get sure. five guys on a message board or five guys on Twitter. And it's like, look what these people are saying. It's like, no, you know, it's that. That's you're 100 percent. correct. They couldn't it's fill up a like classroom. A you know what I mean? Like we often amplify the opinions of of very few people and make it sound like a majority or at least a significant amount of people. But I know what you mean. Like the, the virtue signaling thing to me is like, that would be a lack of action. Like the, as Borky put it on the day on radio, it's like the, the dude that complains about capitalism as he tweets from his iPhone inside of Starbucks or the, the, oh, yeah. the, like, the carbon emissions guy like- who flies <laughs> private, like stuff like that. Like it, whether you agree, disagree, don't like uh, it, it, it resonated with you or not. This is at least action, which to me rules out the virtue signal aspect. And the way Kevin spoke about it, it's clear that he's he thinks a lot of Derek Nix and that Nix was appreciative of the opportunity. Like he brought him up there on stage. I feel like it would have been very obvious if he was just like a prop in this whole thing. And he was just like answering questions. Coach speak was he seemed very appreciative and very happy. And that he enjoyed the hell out of the experience, which whatever you want to bring into it, the minority coach aspect of it, the race aspect of it, he did a nice thing for an assistant that is more than paid his dues. And the guys seem ecstatic about it. And I found joy in that piece of it. It could have looked way off yes it could, for the whole thing could have looked way off and from everything i've seen that was not the case at all um i think he has a lot of respect for nicks i think he has kept him and moved him from different positions because he understands how important he is to the staff i mean this guy's been at old miss for 15 16 years whatever it is for four different staffs like that just doesn't happen anymore. It, you mentioned him being a good person. You cannot be, that's almost impossible to do, even if you're like, you know, Tim Tebow himself. You cannot be an asshole and get caught on, on three different staffs after the first one gets fired. That's amazing stat. Right, exactly. So, I mean, he's deserving of the opportunity to have that experience of a weekend uh, where he gets to be a head coach, understand, you know, certain aspects of that. And yeah, even if 5% of this was like, yeah, this might look pretty good in recruiting for us. Even if it's less than that, like, I get it. That, that's totally fine. And that's like what you want to take from this, because that's how you think about these things, you know, go ahead and do that. But Nick's is the man. He's the best. He deserves his publicity of being the guy who Kiffin has chosen to have that opportunity um, there's just no negatives to take from this. There should be nothing else to take from this besides cool on Kiffin, great on Vrabel. This is something they should do more often in every program. And hopefully, you know, there's some real benefits for everybody involved. 
100% could not agree more on that. I think that's well said. That was about all I had from an Ole Miss perspective, which is crazy. We're not wrapping up the pod yet because we have the, uh, of course, the peak content segment. But, I mean, they're two weeks into camp. We'll probably do one more check-in, and then we'll be talking about the Mercer Bears. <laughs> what happens there? It's coming up quick. But we now shift to the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. The EPL is back. Back in a big way, baby. We had the first weekend of games. It kicked off on Friday. Tons of games on Saturday. I'll go hand up as much as I've talked about how much I've enjoyed watching the EPL on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Uh, my guy Buckley had early tea times every day because he was not in contention. So that really threw into my soccer corner time. I'll I'll throw a gripe or complaint his way later about that. But we're now one game into the EPL season. We'll just go in reverse order because your club, I believe, opened their season on Monday as we record this on a Tuesday. Gets a 1-0 win over Wolves. I believe they score late in the second uh second half. I don't know if that is that the soccer term. I've learned terms of soccer terms. I can say second half, half right across. Yep. Okay, so it's, sweet. It's just happens. Yeah. Second, second 45. Jim Nance would make a, a fancy way to say that. One nothing. You were not from your feedback on the message board, saw a couple of tweets. You were not thrilled by this performance by any stretch of the imagination, even though you walked away with three points. Yeah, it was uh just a pretty disgusting effort uh by United, a team that I've had like pretty high expectations going into this season. And like they weren't really great in the preseason, but I was like, you know. Like in any sport, it's preseason. I'm not worried about it. But there's a lot of work this team is going to have to have. You know, in, in soccer, these guys play so many matches that like year after year, the reason why they pay hundreds of millions to these 21-year-olds is because by the time you're 28, you're damn near done. And we've got guys like Casemiro and Varane who are like absolutely professionals, were, were incredible last year, played at Madrid, that looked like they were 45 playing against some of the midfielders for Wolves. Um, we signed Mason Mount from Chelsea last year, and he and Bruno, who is our captain, he's a Portuguese player. You don't know him. It's fine. They played damn near the same position, and it just did not look like it was going to work. Um, it's hard to even explain uh, what I'm saying by that to you maybe, but it, it would look discombobulated. Uh our new striker we bought uh, has a back injury, so he's not going to play until like early September, like another week or two. And this is a team that desperately needs to have a guy that's a real number 10 with Rashford on one side and whoever wants to play the other wing on the other side. Because the way we've got guys playing out of position that, you know, we have just kind of ignored for a pretty long time. We've started to buy and started to invest in like, you can just see it after that one game, which is how unathletic and kind of out of sorts we looked. And this is coming against a Wolves team whose manager uh, resigned a week before the first game and had a completely new manager in. And they looked, they looked like the better team. And honestly, if we didn't get lucky on a VAR call against our goalie that absolutely should have been a penalty. We probably draw this game or even potentially could have been even worse. Probably should have been uh, not impressive. I read some odds that wolves were the uh, one of the favorites to be relegated. I saw that, you know, you mentioned, let's just get that. I mean, I, I mentioned to you the other day, you tagged me in that tweet. You can't get sacked. If you resign, was this a genius strategy by this guy? How do you resign before the season starts? 
He said that he was frustrated with the ownership's lack of spending in the summer transfer window, and he didn't think he had a shot. So instead of eventually getting fired, he said, fuck it, I'm out. That's amazing. I, I <laughs> But isn't that also, I get it's not a perfect comparison, but isn't that like being at Vanderbilt and being like, this NIL program sucks? I mean, basically, I guess so. I mean, I mean, that's still, I mean, you're just ending your contract and your ability to compete by saying, like, I'm not going to be the scapegoat here eventually when we begin to suck. Uh, I'm just going to head out before even trying. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Um, so, I mean, they were, I mean, I don't think they're going to really compete, obviously. I don't think they're going to get relegated because they've got some absolute horses in the midfield that absolutely torched us. They were more physical. They were faster. They were just a better team and then we just somehow won the game as simple as that it happens in this sport way more than you'd think where the better team ends up winning it's just a weird stats game analytics where they just simply could not finish in the final third if they could have it could have been like three one they were way better and this is still the portuguese majority team is that correct is that wolves oh yeah still okay. still the portuguese majority team i think they i mean I don't remember. They had Semedo and Cunha. I mean, they probably had five of their 11 or maybe even six for like Portuguese. So, yeah, they're still that team. I think they're a little bit less than they usually are this year for whatever reason. Um, but, they, I mean, they looked really good. I'll give them that. My favorite part about uh, EPL soccer, other than just me being able to say, hey, they sacked their manager, is this sport goes from the beginning of August to like mid-May. And that doesn't stop anyone. And I'm talking media uh, decision makers with clubs after like a match and a half being like, this is bullshit. This cannot continue. And just making a rash decision immediately. You were just trying to describe to me about how you guys got a new, whatever you were right. I didn't understand it totally, but like it looked discombobulated. It just cannot work one match in the season. That might be my favorite part about this sport. Well, you see it all the time and it's just so funny. It's you see how teams are run well, and then you see the teams that are run poorly, and it is just right. shown a massive scale. It's very similar to Major League Baseball. Where you're like, okay, this team, like the Mets, you know, they spend a shit ton of money. Their team makes no sense. They are terrible. This other team, the Braves, they spend money, but they spend it smart on young kids. They know exactly what they're doing. And in the EPL, if you follow it enough and understand it, you're like, that team's smart. This team is stupid. They may end up winning, but eventually – the process will equal the results. United has been much better about this, but like when they signed Mount, I was like, I like this player. We have a better version of him. I don't understand why we spent 50 million. Uh, and then you see game one, you're like, yep, that's about exactly how I expected it to go. So they're going to have to adjust pretty quickly. I had an article come into my Twitter timeline, thanks to Elon Musk. So uh, Lutton Town just got hammered by Brighton um in their opener they had to postpone their home opener because the stadium is not ready have you seen this remember this is the one we talked about where it's tiny like it's smaller than name your stat out there and now they're having to postpone their home opener because their stadium's not ready is this like what kind of mickey mouse club is this i think they have to uh you know get up to premier league standards or Shouldn't you do that by the time you actually kick a ball in the Premier League? That would seem like a timely, timely way to I do mean, it. Like you just mentioned, they got you know promoted in May, and we're starting the season in August. Like, There's only so much construction you're able to do in that little amount of time to be able to get up to like whatever the you know OSHA standard is in the, in the Premier League for your stadium capacity. I don't even think it's capacity. I think it's like exits, fire, like all of the above to get ready for. So, yeah, I saw that like a week or two ago. 
Uh, and they got absolutely smashed by one of the teams I mentioned earlier that's incredibly well run is Brighton, and they are just rolling on this year again. I'm not sure I'm buying it. You're now a Premier League club. Let's buy more construction workers. Let's get less guys smoking cigs, more guys on the bulldozer, and let's make this happen. But uh, I'll proceed with caution, but they are preemptively one match in the season on my shit list for just not having their proverbial shit together. I won't go through every score. We had a draw between Chelsea and Liverpool. These are two top clubs that never seem to totally have it together. What do you oh, make of talk about this one finishing now. in the top four in the league? Uh, so this is this was the most interesting match of the entire week. Obviously, it's two top clubs, but it's because not only were they playing each other, but during the week they had a classic uh, college football esque flip of a signing um, for now the most expensive English player ever bought in Moises uh, Caicedo, who came. From- so. Caicedo decided, you know, Liverpool finally made a bid. They made a bid for $110 million uh, to sign Caicedo from Brighton. Uh, Brighton was also talking to Chelsea. They're going back and forth. Liverpool made their biggest bid in the history of the club and in the history of the Premier League. And then he decided, actually, I'm going to go with Chelsea uh, two days before the game played between these two teams so this is the inverse of whatever that guy is in ted lasso who went with the small club instead of the big club whatever the hell his name is yes he's like a caricature of zlatan he's choosing between two giants chelsea have now spent over a billion dollars they actually just signed another kid today in the last three transfer windows they've spent over a billion dollars on players um all of which have like kind of sort of worked out you know it's it's kind of remains to be seen uh liverpool was Probably the better team didn't get the results uh, on the road, but I think they look decent. They are really thin and like absolutely needed this kid to sign with them. And honestly, the guy that just signed with Chelsea today was also going to sign with Liverpool and Chelsea outbid them again. Um, so they are not happy with each other. And it was really funny. There's a video of Klopp, the uh, manager of Liverpool, walking past the uh, – sports talk or the sky sports uh kind of set they have there kind of like monday night football and uh roy Keane says and then kaiseda will be here on monday and you see Klopp just turn the other direction oh like, man i not love even it. go to the interview he's like not doing this today so that was a a really fun byproduct of what was also a really cool game it was a great game so Chelsea was a disaster last year. What is the case for them not being a disaster? Or is this going to be more frustration for uh, the uh, Chelsea faithful? I mean, they have to be better than last year. It's almost impossible not to. Um, I think their biggest concern is just finding where these pieces fit. You know, they're signing players that are really good. That I mean, just verifiably good. I mean, Caicedo was probably one of the best midfielders. Uh, not only in the world, but in the Premier League uh, last year. And they've they've signed so many guys. It's like, who is your 11? And most importantly for them, like, who the hell is scoring goals for you guys? Because they really don't have, like, a day-in, day-out striker. They've got a shit ton of wingers. They've got a ridiculous rich amount of uh, riches in the midfield. They've got a pretty solid defense and a good goalkeeper. But they don't have, like – this is who I expect is going to play for Chelsea next Saturday against whoever. Like you literally right. don't know what their lineup's going to be. Um, meshing and figuring it out is like going to be incredibly important for them. And one of the last things I have, our friends, the Saudis, they just destroyed, uh, who was it? Uh, five to one. 
They beat uh, Aston Villa. The Saudis contending for Aston Villa. Uh, suck it, nerds. You got destroyed by Saudi oil money. Uh, are they going to contend for the league this year? What uh, I, I'll put package into a question that I'll start with the Saudis, but it could be a general one. It's one match in, but hey, there's no such thing as an overreaction across the pond from what I've heard. Can anyone stop Man City from winning this league? No. Okay. They were at, no. It will not be Saudi. It will not be Arsenal. I mean, absolutely not. They, I mean, they are so good. And so, they're, they're only getting better. But this is a top-heavy league. And I've honestly, as we've gotten into the soccer corner, I've like researched the history of the EPL. I get the rich clubs always win. But have you ever had to run a dominance where one club was so far better in a way than the others for like multiple years in a row? Like this seems almost like, I mean, if we were doing first take across the pond, it'd be like, is Man City ruining the sport type of thing? Like this feels right. almost beyond even the lack of parity that this the league has seen before. Uh, whenever Ferguson was at United, they had okay. teams and stretches where they were like this. I don't think it was... It's, I was very young and obviously not near as ingrained in the sport as I am now. I don't have like the history behind me, but that would be like my opinion, like the second only to this city run that we've had for, you know, six, seven years now. Uh, but when you're talking about, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the shit teams that are shit run and the good teams that are shit run, but they're still good. City is this very unique combination of, yes, they have Saudi oil money and they've spent plenty of it. Uh, but they also buy the right players. They are incredibly well run in their youth system, which had to be built up because it was basically shit before Pep and uh, Mancini got there. Now, I mean, when they buy players, you're like, yep, that guy's going to be in that lineup eventually. He's going to be starting and playing really well. Um, and they're kind of they're they're doing this kind of in between uh, eras. You know, some of their older guys. Like Mares, he's he's gone. He's in Saudi Arabia now. Kevin De Bruyne just got injured. One of their best midfielders, one of the best midfielders in the world. He's going to be out for months. Um, and they've got some backline guys that are different, but they've continued to just bolster it with these younger guys that they bought, not even at like ridiculous prices. I mean, they're expensive as shit, but they, it's just they're just flowing so seamlessly throughout this entire thing. I just don't see anybody stopping them. My Brentford Bees drawed uh, Tottenham. I should just be happy about that and see where it goes. They are an example of a well-run team. You know, they lost their striker to a gambling situation. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, uh, I did not. But that seems to ch to check out, right? Because the, the the guys that owned the team were handicappers, correct? <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's appropriate for them. Uh, I'd be Jones offended team. if someone didn't get suspended for gambling issues on that team. Honestly, it would it would be make more sense than does in Iowa and Iowa State right now. Um, so they lost their probably best player and their striker, a guy that was going to potentially take Harry Kane's spot in the English side. And Tony, uh, he gambled on like over 350 matches and has been given like a one year ban. Uh, that seems Vegas. light given the number of matches. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Lot. It was a lot. Um, you know, it was like it wasn't like he's not betting on himself or against his team, but you know, it's one of those deals. Can't do it. Uh, so he he's you know suspended out. Uh, but they just keep on moving. They they're really good about what they do. They do it at even probably a cheaper level than Brighton. Um, I, I think they're gonna be just fine. I don't see them going down. They're they're still really good. I was about to wrap up the pod, but something you said a second ago, give me one last question. Neymar is now a Saudi league guy. Neymar is gone from PSG. PSG has gone from a front three of Mbappe, Messi, and Neymar 
to Ramos from Benfica, some South Korean kid, and then uh, a backup from Real Madrid. So are the Saudis ruining soccer? Because, like, you got all these guys going over there and signing. No one pays attention to that league. If we ever start talking about that, we should probably just jump off a bridge. Like, what is happening here? Like, the most pop- some of the most popular players in the world are now going to the soccer equivalent of live golf, with, except people don't know exactly what that is. I mean, it's it's just sports washing at its finest. I mean, it's is it ruining it? That's tough to say because, you know, unlike golf, there is just an insane amount of talent in the sport that like even when you lose the big names that are older, which is kind of the guys are going after so very similar to live golf. You know, there's just guys that step right in and you're like, oh, my God, this kid's a fucking world class player. I've never even fucking heard of him. Like, you know, it's right. just it, it kind of rotates at a quicker rate than you know golf stars would but i mean it's a real it's a real concern i mean there's a lot of players that are looking into that saudi arabian league and be like i i'm kind of had enough of competing i'm down to go over there neymar will be making like five million a week um, along with eighty five thousand dollars for every win and five hundred thousand dollars for every positive post about saudi arabia on his instagram account is that a real thing that is a hundred percent factual real thing he makes a half a million dollars for saying Saudi Arabia is awesome. Hashtag Every, uh, oil. Hashtag, you know, Aramco. Hashtag yeah, that is Kashi, I like what My God, like what? Jesus Christ. I didn't even know that was a real thing. So in the defense of like it ruining soccer, it's the fact that soccer is such a global game with so many leagues with so much talent, right? I mean, the greatest player ever, supposedly Messi, like never played in the EPL. Like that would never fly in American sports, which is wild to me. So soccer is probably fine, but it doesn't mean we have to like this. No, I mean, it's definitely not cool, but it's not, I don't think it's got this kind of like, you know, dooming, you know, dooming gloom, the future's gone effect as like many people thought golf was going to be. And like, to be honest, like we still haven't seen what the results of this whole golf merger is going to be in the first place. So who knows? Uh, I mean, it's just kind of crazy. Some of the names that have gone over and played there. I mean, you could look up some of those rosters. And you'd be like, holy shit, like every single one of these players was playing in a top three league last year. They may all be over 30, but like, you know, these are still really like world class players that are now playing a league that no one gives a shit about or will ever watch. Um, but it's not going to break this sport, um, I don't think, uh, unless someone like a Cam Smith, which in the case of like soccer would be like a Mohamed Salah. There were some rumors about him, the winger from Liverpool who's one of the best players in the world going over there. If that would happen and like they steal someone's best player, uh, then you'd be like, okay, this is like kind of a step too far. This has been the fastest growing segment on American soil, soon to be sponsored by the PIF or a guillotine. It has been Soccer Corner. I appreciate the time, my man. We'll uh, check in probably once more for the season, and then we'll uh, we'll be into game week. I appreciate the time, my dude. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Appreciate Weldon's time. Always enjoy chopping it up with him about Ole Miss football, and the season will be here before we know it. We've got a couple more interviews for you coming down the pipe this week, so stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to the show as always.